Hey guys, my name is Jordan Koss. Welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast. This 16-episode series is based off my final project for my Doctorate of Ministry degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. The title of that final project is Almost Essential Evangelists, Improving Retirement Asset Accumulation for Mainstream Church of Christ Pastors. In this series, we will interview eight different specialists in eight separate episodes. And we will also interview two pastors from each of eight different regions around the U.S. This final project was inspired by 10 years of ministry in three different churches of Christ from Georgia to Northern California from 2010 to 2019, as well as my time as a financial professional in training in 2020. That is where I learned about the retirement crisis America is in and will be experiencing in the coming years. Now, I have three goals for this podcast. One, provide an accessible, denomination-specific qualitative conversation for Church of Christ pastors and leaders. Two, introduce leaders and listeners to retirement vehicles and strategies they may not have heard about before. And three, provide encouragement, motivation, and knowledge to save for the last third of life. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast. My name is Jordan Koss. I'm with uh, Lars Coburn, my co-host, and this is, I think, uh, episode eight of our 16-episode series. We have a very, very special guest with us today, but first, Lars, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit uh, for our viewers and listeners? Yeah, so here um, in the kind of rainy, wet weather of the Pacific Northwest in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, I get to serve as director of church relations, university relations um, in, in Bushnell University's advancement office. So trying to grow uh, the university through raising money and telling stories. Um, and I get to be part of some initiatives like this where we're asking some questions about, uh, you know, the health of pastors. And so I'm really invested in this, not just because I served for almost eight years as a youth minister, a family pastor at a church, a local church, and I'm still involved preaching at local churches. I care about my friends in ministry, um, but I'm also caring about this project from a university standpoint. How can universities and education institutions help um, share good resources with others? So I hope this Almost Essential podcast will be a good good resource for, for pastors and churches. Yeah, same here, same here. And so thank you for that intro, Lars. And uh, with us today as our special guest uh, is Stan Granberg. Stan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for those who haven't heard of you before. I'm the uh, older guy in the bunch here, in case you can't figure <laughs> that out. Uh, I grew up in the Northwest, in the Seattle area, and went to Harding University, and from there over to Memphis to, at that point, Harding University Graduate School of Religion, which is now Harding School of Theology. Mm -hmm. uh, then I went into the mission field uh, from after a few years of youth work, went to Kenya, spent 10 years church planting and leadership development in Kenya. I came back from there and finished up a degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. And then was teaching at Lubbock Christian University, Cascade mm -hmm. College. I uh, got my uh, doctorate degree from the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in Oxford, England. 
through the Open University. And uh, then in uh, 2004, resigned from, uh, from teaching and started Kairos Church Planting and worked in that for 15 years, uh, just helping new churches get started across the country here in the U.S. So I've been a, a missionary evangelist. That yeah. would be how I would <laughs> characterize my career. Now I'm back in the Seattle area in the, the very sunny and bright Seattle area at the moment and enjoying life at the early part of retirement. Uh, that's great. I was in Seattle right before Christmas as part of the whole Southwest uh, air, airline debacle. I was stuck in Seattle for about a day and a half, but uh, was able to get out with a rental car, thankfully. Uh, but Oh, uh, it, my goodness. <laughs> it was a beautiful view uh, from the airport, though, of Seattle. Um, but uh, yeah, thankful to get out of that. That was quite the story. But I had you... That was Oh yeah. That was tough. It was tough. It was tough. But uh I had you as a professor, I don't know, back in the late 2000s at Harding School of Theology for I believe the class was global evangelism. Yeah. Right. So, right. Yep. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm so yeah, awesome. Grateful that uh you have joined us today. First question, let's uh let's uh, uh let's get started here. How was just basically you're retired, you mentioned, how's your retirement going and what's uh, been your plan in, ter in terms of funding your last year of life as a missionary, professor, mi minister within Churches of Christ? Well, you know, as Churches of Christ, there isn't really any kind of a retirement system in place. So it's all uh, a uh, ad hoc do-it-yourself type system. Right. Yeah, uh, I started thinking about retiring a long time ago. Uh, probably as people who were mentors in my life uh, talking about it. But probably uh, my retirement follows what a lot of guys did when I first started. We were pretty much encouraged to get out of the Social Security system. And uh, so I did, based on that advice, a little bit also because it was difficult to afford it right. at that time of, of life. But uh, with better advice uh, from mentors, as uh, soon as I was able to do so, I got back into it. And uh, so that's kind of been the, the foundation piece. You need mm -hmm. to have that. Uh, it's it's there. It's available. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say my uh, most influential person advice wise was my dad. Okay. And uh, he had some uh, rental properties. Mm. And I'd go over and help them get uh, get them cleaned up and things. And we had some interesting stories I from bet. some of the renters that he had. Uh, and uh, but from that, I had that uh, that interest in it. And uh, so I guess I would say that uh, my retirement is based on the Social Security. Mm -hmm. And then we tried some. You know, we tried mutual funds, never were able to make mutual funds work very well for us. The ups and downs were always, you know, they just kind of canceled everything out. Uh, we did have uh, then, I'd say on top of Social Security, we had some indexed uh, annuities and uh, whole life okay. policies. And so that... Uh, that provides that kind of that second very consistent layer, mm -hmm. uh, but our primary vehicle has been uh, been real estate. Okay. So I've 
I tell people I started with the uh, the cheapest drug house I could find in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, and uh, moved up from there to a uh, the next better drug house was a triplex, and then moved from there to uh, into some commercial real estate, and uh, we have a I think a very comfortable retirement from that. Okay, that's awesome, Lars. Any follow up questions to that? Um, yeah. So, any issues with kind of getting back into Social Security, or any advice you would have to say somebody who maybe did opt out and is concerned about uh, opting back in? What would would you say to somebody who maybe has been kind of on that train for a while? Maybe they took some of that advice. I I know it's not as common to hear anymore for new for younger ministers but um what would you maybe say to somebody who's listening who who took that advice and uh and there's maybe they're thinking maybe the ship has sailed um any thoughts stan since you had that you know they they they've offered periodically uh, windows to let people back in and that that's what i took advantage of Mm -hmm. so i haven't paid attention to how often they do that or Mm -hmm. what gets that trip so it's an open window yeah uh, but boy if a, a window comes open need to take it is is what i would but tell people you know theologically i don't think our our background has a theological uh issue mm. at all with social security okay i i think some places in our background there's, there's probably some of that uh, mm-hmm. You know, coming out of Lipscomb and Harding, there may be some reluctance, but I, I don't feel like most uh, most people in our fellowship find that. In fact, I would say most people would say, why would you ever right. you know, opt out? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, you know, they were always saying, well, by the time you retire, there won't be so any Social Security. Well, right. It has changed definitely, and it will probably change in the future, mm-hmm. uh, but I doubt it's going away. So yeah. that would be the second P. I guess the third would be make sure you can get your 40 quarters in. As if someone's old enough where that's going to be very difficult to get the 40 quarters in. Got to make sure uh, I'd say that Medicare is available. That's probably one of the big advantages of our Social Security system, because otherwise I just don't know what you would do on the you know medical insurance. Right. It's just so difficult at this point uh, so I, I guess that's my my thoughts there but uh, i hope people would take advantage of any opportunity to get back in the system if they ever did opt out at some point so and you when you say 40 quarters that's paying into social security for at least 40 quarters of a you know right. one year is four quarters right okay okay so you gotta get those 10 years 10 years of work in Gotcha. And some people, you know, they might have some back, uh, some work history in their background, and uh, get online, get um, uh, get your account set up so you can look and see and find out how many quarters you have because they have it all listed out there. Yeah, and just make sure that uh, that things come together for mm-hmm. you. But well, I would just absolutely say get, get into it. I just don't think there's any real downsides uh, to it, and it. You know, it kind of forces us to pay into it and get that uh, that foundational piece in place for retirement when that comes comes to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. Great, great, great. And so what would you, I mean, real estate has always interested me. Um, and I'm not yet, I haven't tried yet to get into it, but I want to. So what would you uh, say, what piece of advice for a COC pastor is looking for some passive income to help bolster his preparation for uh, saving for retirement? Uh, what would you, what, what kind of advice would you get to kind of jump into that? Well, if it, uh... Real estate isn't a passive income piece. It's a it's oh. a very active yeah. It's a <laughs> okay. very active piece. Got it. Uh, you know, I think where I've gotten to, it's much more passive than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. uh, but I like to to tell people when they ask, so what's that like? I can say, well, the first day on the job, I got bit by a Rottweiler, and it went up from there. <laughs> so, you know, I had several things that was working with for me. One, I wanted my uh, my two boys to be able to work on houses, and so you know, we bought things that we did fixer uppers with. We didn't get, do the flips that are so. Oh, people, you know, think that's kind of the in thing today, right? Uh, but. Uh, you know, I had my boys and uh, we were in some stable places. So we were able to to move them on for four or five years and then sell it and gain the appreciation and then turn that over into the to the next one and kind of keep moving up on it. Uh, I never really took any money from my real estate until we retired. So everything always went back into it. Mm -hmm. So it always kind of was a, a pot that was growing over onto the side and I was always managing it, taking care of it. But we, oh, you know, there might be something that I'd buy a birthday present for someone or something like that. But mostly everything that came with it always was turned back into it. Okay. And then that allowed us to to do all the, advancements on the properties that we needed to do because we bought at the low end of things mm -hmm. and then got them looking good and working well and then uh, then we're able to sell them and gain that appreciation of course we were doing that uh, mostly up here in the northwest where there was a good appreciation okay. some parts of the country like the middle parts um, you don't get much appreciation so you got to do something that's income generating Okay. And so you got to, to to look and see how that works. Uh, yeah. I would say it's an interest thing. It's certainly not for everybody to do. Mm -hmm. And for most ministers, mm -hmm. it's probably a little more of an iffy, a harder mm -hmm. piece, unless you just really have an interest right. in it, because it does take, it takes a lot of time and you have to have a certain emotional mm you know, emotional approach to it because you start getting a, you know, a call in the middle of the night and mm. something's happened and you got to go take care of something or when you're, uh, you know, you start becoming friends with the local law enforcement because of bad tenants, you know, yeah. there, there's just some downsides to it. So you have to have, you have to develop that, that sense of this is, this is good and I can handle this. And if you can't, you know, then I wouldn't get into it. Sure. But for us, it's been very good. It's been very good. It's been a, a real blessing to us. And we've, uh, for the most part, we've enjoyed that ride, you know, along the way. But we started 1997. Okay. And then retired in 2019. Uh, started, really got everything ready for our full retirement in 2000. And 
21, we kind of finished everything out real estate wise for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not too late. If you get 15, 20 years, it's, uh, it can do very well for people. Okay. All right. Great, great, great. Um, all right. Shifting gears a little bit into uh, one of the, some, one of the articles that you've written in the recent past that was published back in 2018, a case study of growth and decline, Churches of Christ from 2006 to 2016. I remember listening to a podcast by uh, Bob Turner, where he was talking about your article with another minister in the Memphis area and how that one other minister uh, kind of took the data and try, and, and, and saw how the county that was uh, that Memphis was in, how they were kind of like a, a microcosm of the overall decline of Church of Christ in the entire country. But what was the big picture that you learned within within that uh, research, within that study? And how do you see the big picture of what you found impacting COC pastors and saving for retirement? Okay. Let me kind of get some background to that. When uh, we were getting ready to go to Kenya in the early 1980s, uh, Abilene Christian University had a, a summer seminar on missions. And so we went to that for, for two years. And I was introduced from Wendell Broom, uh, who was kind of one of my uh, hero mentors through the years, to this idea of church growth studies. And just the phraseology of church growth that came out of Fuller Theological Seminary and Donald McGavern. Uh, so it was kind of a, it was, it was an approach to try to, as McGavern called it, to take away the fog of not knowing. Yeah. And what it did for me it was it changed my expectation of being a pastoral leader. I'd say I was trained to be a, a, a pastor, a, a counselor, not a leader, uh, not someone who was apostolic, not a prophetic style of ministry at all. Uh, very uh, kind of a, almost in our fellowship, a second tier leadership role. Okay. When you ask almost anyone in our congregations who are your leaders, they're going to say first they're elders, and then they're going to go to their deacons, and then they'll get to their hired hand ministers. Yeah. And I think that's been a bit of a crippling piece for us, and we've yeah. promoted it through our schools and through our uh, university education processes. So our very apostolic, dynamic, prophetic leaders, they tended to go somewhere else so that gave me a different mindset when we went to kenya we were starting something from scratch uh, and uh, we thought you know we're, we're getting a big investment in this so what's the return on investment for the kingdom going to be and uh, every year we would do those church growth studies to see what's going on how are we doing things you know are we doing well? Are we making progress? What are the issues? How do we make plans for the future and set goals and objectives for the future? I don't hear that very often from many of our churches at all. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk about my book, Empty Church, but most of our churches, most of our church leadership is based on maintenance and not missional. And that church growth study moved me to a missional mindset. So it gave me the tools, gave me the background. When we came, when we left uh, in 1983 for Kenya, our fellowship was at its high, 
it was dynamic. It, was, it felt like uh, the world was its oyster. We could do anything, go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, money was pretty free. Churches were building buildings. They were building bigger buildings. They were adding on to their buildings. Uh, <clears throat> when we came back, uh, it had been a shift. Mm. And that shift was only intuited by most people in 19 the mid 1990s it was kind of intuited but no one really uh, really saw anything of danger yeah. on the the sight lines mm-hmm. uh, so it, as i got into our education system and i had a lot of students who could do research you know on the ground particularly when i got up to cascade in portland oregon i had my students in the uh, a class or two actually it was a class that was a a repeating class so about every year I'd have about eight or ten students that were doing church growth studies on their churches mostly from Washington Oregon Idaho California some from Alaska I I ended up with uh, almost 150 studies of local congregations and every one of those studies except for two It was a, here was our growth until about 1980 to to 90, and then it started down. And by the time, you know, this was in the early 2000s, they were maybe half their size and uh, still not seeing any danger signs. But when I put all that together in the Northwestern states, Churches of Christ, uh, had already peaked and had lost about 20% of our uh, the bulk of our members and adherents by 2000. Mm. And so that began for, to, for me to, uh, to set the alarm bells off. I uh, went in and talked to our president at Cascade about it. And, uh, you know, as a president, you got to raise money. You raise money from people in churches. And when there's not very many churches, and when people are not very engaged out of those, it's hard to raise money. And so we talked through that some, and he said it's just very difficult. Yeah. So when 2004 came around, and there was a, just a big challenge God laid out there through the Christian churches that were planting churches just very successfully, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I got into the church planting process Mm -hmm. uh, to try to to bring some kind of a renewal and rejuvenation because we had gotten off of our our mission Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the background to that bigger study so uh, in 1996 uh, I had I had data that I gathered and then when 2006 came around they gave me that good 11 year window to do a a traditional technical church growth study of Churches of Christ. So uh, I used the information uh, from our Churches of Christ in the U.S. out of uh, Nashville and Carl Royster and uh, pulled that together. And uh, I, I called, uh, at, as I was doing that, I called Flavel Yakely Jr., who mm-hmm. was uh, Cersei at the time. He'd been our statistician okay. for the Churches of Christ. And I asked uh, Flavel, I said, Flavel, is okay with you if I, I do this? And he said, go for it. Uh-huh. And uh, when Flavel was doing his work, mm-hmm. he was very careful to couch his findings in a way that didn't disturb people okay Uh, by the time i came to it 
I felt like I needed to couch it in ways that created a great disturbance in people. Yeah. Because things had shifted. So our, our fellowship uh, hit our fulcrum, hit our high point somewhere, maybe, you know, 85, 90, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And we've been on that decline. And we, uh, I think the publishing of that article officially put us in a declining church context, uh, you know, in the United States. Okay. So that's right. the big picture. We are a declining church. <laughs> and we've been declining for about 30, over 30 <laughs> years now. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. thank you for that overview and background. Um, is Kairos the only church planning organization within Churches of Christ? Or are there other like no. non-official? Okay. Mission Alive, uh, out of uh, started okay. out of Abilene. Galen Van Reenen and I okay. uh, both were in Kenya together, and kind of both started uh, Mission Alive with Galen. And I started uh, Kairos Church Planting at about the same time. Okay. And then there's some that are out of uh, uh, you know out of some churches. Uh, it's in North Boulevard in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Right has a pretty active church planting ministry. It is mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, mm-hmm. two-thirds world uh, type pieces. As, as God brought his challenge to them, they wanted to plant 60,000 churches, and they realized they would not plant 60,000 in the U.S. So they went to these more receptive fields to do that. But they are doing some church planting in the U.S. So uh, Harding has had some... Uh, some initiatives, ACU has had some initiatives in church planting. Uh, people have asked asked me, they say, well, Stan, why do you need why do we need both Mission Alive and Kairos? And I hearken back <laughs> to the Christian churches. I said, that's not the right question. Yeah. The question is, why do we only have mm-hmm. Mission Alive and Kairos? Mm-hmm. Why don't we have 30 or 40 of these ministries that can really tackle their regions? and know those regions and bring uh, initiatives and engagement to them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, we have been in the past a very deeply engaged church planting group. Mm-hmm. Uh, most places I go, I'll kind of fish around to say, how did this congregation get started? And in most any area, if you go back two generations of people, uh, they know the people who started half a dozen churches here or a dozen churches there, went down down the road, down the street, across the Vale, and started churches. But we uh, we got away from that. We lost that perspective in our fellowship. Yeah, yeah. I uh, have a pretty interesting just history of growing up in Church of Christ. I've experienced multiple different regions within my just my first eighteen years of life. I. I was uh, born and raised at a church in Downriver, Detroit, in Lincoln Park, Michigan, which was founded in the 20s um, by people moving from the south up north to work in the auto industry, et cetera. And uh, my grandmother was a secretary there. My dad had served in leadership, still serves in leadership there as an elder. And back in the early 90s, back in like 91, 92, we moved to outside of Philadelphia and we went to a church in Exton, Pennsylvania, which was a very different in many ways, which is culturally, et cetera. But it, there was, the congregations there were smaller uh, compared to what I had known in the Midwest. And then the final like uh, year or two of high school, I experienced what it was like to live and go to church in the Bible Belt in Middle Tennessee, 
uh, McMinnville, Tennessee. And that was just kind of like, wait, what's a youth group? Like, whoa, this, these churches are big. This is kind of freaking me out. Cause I was used to, I was a Yankee. I didn't, I wasn't used to big churches. Uh, but that was an interesting experience. Just to, those, those first 18 years alone before getting into ministry or three different churches over the course of 10 yeah. years. You go but, to, like to Nashville and on Sunday afternoon, Sunday mornings, they have policemen out on the roads directing traffic yeah. to get people in and out of the parking lots. You think, where's that come from? Yeah, totally, totally. Lars, you were about to say something? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I I feel like I was born at the wrong time, Stan, uh, for our <laughs> movement to some degree. Um, we we sometimes described our ministry in these churches on the West Coast as a ministry of retreat. Um, and actually, most of the time, it wasn't even that. It was just uh, an acceptance, finally, sometimes of these trends. So, I mean, I was born in 1991 in Portland, and the church really hit its peak right right about that time uh, when I was five, six years old. Um, two services, several hundred people. We moved back to uh, Portland in 2000, uh, well, yeah, 99. And I would say the church was at its um, kind of precipice, and it was only a couple of years later by 2004, that they had uh, shrunk and um, were continuing to shrink. And and then eventually they had to sell that building that they had built on. I mean, they had added on. Uh, I think they had maybe built it in the in the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And then they added on to it in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and, you know, so I just my memory of that church which I thought was kind of one of the larger ones in Portland. Um, there's, there's still one or two that are, that are big, but for the most part, it used to be we'd get together with the seven or eight large churches in the Portland metro area and had these big events together and a, a worship service once a year all together down at the convention center. Um, and now I talk to ministers up there and it's, you know, there's maybe one or two churches left that are, even close to the size of each of those churches. Um, and, uh, and the same could be true about the churches I served in, in Southern California, uh, Canyon View Church of Christ in San Diego was a merger of two churches in the um, early nineties, about 91, I think, and Pacific beach congregation in Claremont. And they hit their Zenith as they added on to their building with a multi-purpose room that then was supposed to be, uh, have a sanctuary added on overlook, overlooking the canyon. And that project never got off the ground. And I think it was 2005 that they went from their five, you know, their peak 500, 600 to, uh, to a slow decline. And by the time I left there, it was, uh, you know, smaller than 250. So I don't know where they're at right now, but when I visited again, I, you know, they, they were one of the largest, we, we jokingly called them the Helms Deep of Churches of Christ in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Um, so if the Church of Christ at 250 is the largest one in San Diego County, you know, this huge county now, um, and Portland, I can think of a church of three or four, you know, maybe 400 now mm -hmm. is the largest church there in Tigard, um, in, in this large metropolitan area of Portland. Um, what, you know, what can we do in these churches, uh, in your mind? Is it smaller church smaller mini churches um and just not trying to get back to what we had at the zenith kind of or or are, are there things that some of these churches who maybe still have the size you know i mean um 
basically, are there things you would you would recommend that they can do? And then we'll we'll continue on to the retirement questions. But I just yeah, before right. we move on from that, I I'd be curious if you have some thoughts um, for those at churches that are kind of hanging on that maybe are the helms deep. If you if you like the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. analogy. Um, mm-hmm. where people are, are fleeing, if you will, from the dying churches and they're coming to kind of the last one that's the refuge place. Okay. Um, well, I think there's some great examples of uh, some churches that have made a transition out of the 20th century and into the 21st century. And I think that's what we've got to uh, to work with. Uh, realize that there's a, a major transition that has to take place. And that is difficult. Um, Northwest Church here in Seattle, which is the flagship uh, Church of Christ, and they would probably not fully style themselves as a Church of Christ anymore. They merged with the Christian Church, so it's a stone camp, very much a stone Campbell. Uh, but you won't even very much hear Christian church stuff. But the the DNA is Church of Christ, Christian Church, Stone Campbell. They uh, they made a very deliberate move out of an older building into a, a place that the, uh, was a 10 fitness center that they re- renovated. But it wasn't the renovation of place. It was the renovation of mindset that they underwent. And they realized they had to become a 21st century church. And so they did that. And, and there are there are stories of that new vintage down in San Diego is a new church plant that uh, Tim Spivey uh planted uh, several years ago they are you know they're a 21st century church uh luminous city is a church plant in san diego uh that's you're going to be a good 21st century church there are other churches that have made that move um and so i'd say the the basic move is to move out of that maintenance mindset to a missional mindset we've got to get back to why do we exist and let that begin to guide us. Mm. And the questions that we need to ask are going to come from the people who we're going to uh, find along the way that God is going to bring to us from the harvest field. And then they're going to bring the questions that we need to start answering. Mm-hmm. And that that's, it may sound a bit simplistic, but uh, I think that's exactly where uh, God has put the resources for us in his harvest, is those new people who will guide us to do the things, to be able to engage the culture around us. And churches that aren't able to do that, they, they will close. Uh, yeah. so that. There, there's just no no doubt that timing might be the issue on it, but churches that can't make that shift from maintenance to missional, they they will close sooner than later, and uh, that's what they ha- have to do. It, it's in our blood; it's it's available to us, but it's going to take some real courageous leadership. Mm-hmm. And, and I see uh, a number of bright spots around us for that. But we're going to have to recreate uh, a new fellowship out of our old fellowship that starts in the 21st century and then moves into the 22nd, you know, when that finally gets here. Okay, great. So let's let's go on to question three, and then I'll ask the, the retirement question, just based upon overall big picture of the future of Churches of Christ. In your article with Tim Woodruff of Interim Ministry Partners, Church to Christ in 2050, which you can find for free online at their website, Interim Ministry Partners. <laughs> 
you project a probable 30-year horizon for Churches of Christ. What was that horizon and, and what impact does it have on our subject today of COC pastors and them preparing financially for retirement? Our you know, horizon was looking out to 2050 uh, at the time, and we were trying to anticipate what the things would be. And so we put out two lines. One was kind of a uh, taking a, a, a straight line, the losses that uh, you know, have been documented over the last 10 years that I uh, brought out in my 2006 study. And if we we took those, we would be you know about half the size and numbers of churches and of members. Um, we were up in the top ten uh, largest religious you know, Christian religious groups in the U.S. in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, we dropped down to number fourteen. Uh, but our churches have been the smallest of any of those that are over a million, mm -hmm. you know, members, adherents. We were the smallest per congregation. Mm -hmm. um, so they were, we were micro churches in one sense. Uh, nowadays, micro churches are often talked about more of six to 10 people. But I think uh, the better micro churches are more around the 30 ish range. So we were many to micro churches, is kind of been our spot and things but tim and i also said well we don't anticipate because of our uh, our mortality rate we don't anticipate that being a straight line loss but it uh, being a loss that gains speed so largely used the term of cliff yeah where's the cliff where's the uh, the turn the, the the gladwell turning point where things yeah. uh, just really drop off and so we anticipated that that would come and then would end it, leave us at 2050 at about, you know, 2,800 congregations down from a high of around 13,200 congregations yeah. and somewhere below 3,000 in our uh, membership. Mm -hmm. And we you kind of feel like that that would be uh, drastic. I think it is drastic. Uh, but there's already studies that I quoted from uh, England, where the, uh, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, some other churches have already undergone that yeah. and uh, have hit the cliff, fallen off of it, and they're down at the, those lower levels now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is a possibility and a probability for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. You, I think, yeah, you said uh, 250,000 membership by 2050 and 2,800 congregations. That's, that's crazy. You also mentioned it was in it, this article or the previous one we mentioned that, uh, and Larza, you alluded to this, that the West coast is the canary in the coal mine for Bible Belt churches of Christ. Can you unpack that a little bit more? You know, I was uh, paint, painting a, a room one day Mm -hmm. And had the radio on and listening, and there was uh, a uh, so, somehow I guess as a I got uh, Ed Stetzer, who has been a great uh, church planning and missiologist for the Southern Baptists in the United States, and Ed said, that, and this was probably 12, 15 years ago now. He said, if you want to know what churches are going to be like in America in twenty five years go to Vancouver, British Columbia. <laughs> and I think he's exactly right. So mm. 
it, when Cairo started, people said you need to move down to the south. That probably for resources that would have been okay, but we were a research and development organization. And uh, to be on the West Coast, and particularly the Northwest, gave us the room, the opportunity, and the context to do research and development on what it's going to be like. Because what are the questions people are going to ask? Uh, and they're questions that are not, they don't begin with, well, what about the Bible? They begin with, is there anything beyond what we have right here? These, uh, you know, the meta narratives don't work in many people's lives. They're into many narratives of what I believe and what I can construct. And that's where uh, church planners have been working with that kind of new set of questions, new set of answers that have to be given to them. Um, the creation of communities that learn how to uh, stick together in life uh, are, are forming in these new churches. Uh, they're learning to um, not fear culture around us and set mm -hmm. up a lot of barriers to keep it out. Uh, but they are embracing the challenge of the cultures. So I'd say, you know, having lived and worshipped in both the contexts, the Southern context, uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, most recently, which had the nomenclature to it as the most church city in America. I don't know if it is, but that's yeah. what they, they said. It's certainly a very highly churched. But even there, we heard I heard those same questions beginning to be asked. And uh, so it moves us to that very missional mindset of how do we engage the culture around us? Don't get caught up in it so that it swallows us, which it does. Uh, you know, I've seen that in, in multiple churches up here. It just swallowed the churches. Uh, they lost faith in Jesus. They lost faith in God as a dynamic entity in life. Uh, lost their trust in Scripture as being any kind of a of a you know divine guide for people, and uh, you know lost their way. So we're going to have to be tougher skin than we've been with the culture around us. Uh, I really, uh, you know, appreciate uh, Redeemer Presbyterian mm -hmm. Church in New York and how they have embraced that and modeled that. Tim Keller's Forest. church. Mm -hmm. Tim Keller, yeah, mm -hmm. church, uh-huh. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I think Tim has been the, uh, the best apologist mm. for us in these, you know, last 25 years. Yeah, I remember why I've, I've read some of his stuff and listened to a bunch of his stuff on YouTube. And I remember one of those, it was how he like has read The Secular Age by Charles Taylor like 10 times, because that's, if you want to know what, what it's like to try to do ministry in our culture, that's a, a good picture to help, at least that he helped him figure out how to do ministry in Manhattan. And mm -hmm. and a lot of my time mm -hmm. in my DMN studies at Fuller has been writing papers in light of the literature that based upon Taylor's picture of the age of authenticity in the secular age. It's helped me out tremendously as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can think of a bunch of books on my bookshelf over here that are related to this discussion. Um, missional churches, some of the things you talked about earlier, for sure. Um, as my studies at Fuller were with Mark Lau Branson and, um, and his partnership with the Canadian Alan Roxborough, they did a demon 
cohort down there that I know several of our Church of Christ ministers um, in in Southern California have been through, and it's helpful. Um, so I'll, I'll give a shout out to Martin Rodriguez and Dan Rodriguez down at uh, Pepperdine mm. uh, that I think are doing some really good work with this uh, within our movement, primarily supporting some of the emerging and, and newer uh, Hispanic churches of Christ, um, in, in Southern California that are, uh, as you say, kind of being that new, uh, shift in imagination. Um, so I think there are bright spots and hopes when we, when we mm-hmm. talk about this decline or this cliff, we, we also need to look for the new, uh, the new hopes and, uh, excitement. So I, I appreciate, uh, how Kairos has been part of that and your efforts over the years, but then also even as a, uh, a prophet of disruption. Um, you've also pointed us to, to hope. Um, I know many times being around at Harbor at, at Pepperdine Bible lectures and, and some of your, your sessions there, um, mm-hmm. were always a good, good part of the balance of the conversation at, at the conferences like that. Um, I'd be curious to know, uh, what your thoughts are as churches of Christ compared to other movements that are similar to us. So have you interacted with, um, people outside of just the restoration movement, not just the Christian churches, but, but other denominations, like you mentioned, uh, Ed Stetzer and stuff like that with some of these others, how are we doing in relationship to those other movements that might be kind of, I mean, we're evangelical adjacent, I think, you know, so I'm not sure we fit that perfectly, but they might be the closest thing we fit to, um, so, so as you are listening and talking with other people who do this work in other denominations or other movements, um, are they following a similar curve? Are, are they uh, seeing similar signs as you are? Or are we kind of a little bit more unique since, as you mentioned, we're kind of the smaller uh, micro church almost uh, situations? Well, it seems like uh, every denomination has uh, is seeing the same thing. We are becoming uh, very much, you know, a post-Christian uh, culture uh, in the U.S. We're not nearly as far down, uh, not nearly as sarcastically skeptical as European, you know, culture is. Uh, I spent a number of years uh, going over for six to eight weeks at a time to uh, to Oxford. And uh, so getting a sense of it, of it there, you, but, you know, it, there you, you see the alpha course. That's just been a phenomenal. Uh, it's been one of my, uh, one of my love childs, the alpha course. Uh, okay. it, it's, it's been phenomenal through, through my ministry and the use of it. But here in the States, uh, almost every uh, denomination is feeling it, is seeing it. So, you know, the uh, main line stream they went through it in the 1970s 80s and 90s uh, evangelicalism was said to be the the bulwark of christianity in america so but even uh, evangelicalism is uh, is feeling it now so the same things the mainline denominations experienced earlier 30 years earlier we're now into that as i don't know of any denominational structures that are feeling, uh, not feeling the pinch, okay. but where I, I didn't work so much with the denominational structures as uh, networks and affiliations that were substrata within those. Uh, so the PCEA, uh, Presbyterian Church, uh, uh, Evangelical Free Church, 
and other streams. They had these, uh, they had networks and affiliations in them and they crossed lines sometimes. And those were the ones that were like uh, with Kairos, they were the research and development people. They were the ones that were uh, trying new things because you can do that in a new church. You can try new things uh, next week. Doesn't take you know next year to get to, to a decision. You can do it next week. And uh, I, I think all of them experienced uh, a lot of goodness and ha have provided uh, opportunities for their fellowships to uh, to see hope and to learn some new habits and new ways of uh, of approaching their ministries. So that, that those were the ones that I've I've worked with, and I've, I've seen some that have just done phenomenally. I'm thinking Gary Rohrmeyer up in the Midwest, and. Uh, his group, they planted 500 churches in about 25 years through the mm. last part of last century and beginning of this century. Just done a great, great work with it. Uh, Tom Nebel, another kind of writer in the church growth uh, growth world, been part of that. Uh, so there's been some, some good pieces. But overall, we're going to see uh, smaller churches. The mega churches are still going to be around. Okay. There was a Tom Rayner had a, a a podcast a while back where he said we're going to have to to reassess our metric for sizes, and he said from now on we're going to have to say a large church is two hundred. That's a okay. large church. If you go to um, uh, where did I recently just see this Oxano, great okay. group. Working with churches, doing a lot of good coaching. Will Mancini's but group, right? Will Mancini's yeah, mm -hmm. group that he he formed, and he's gone on to other other things, but okay. uh, that's his group. But if you look at their scale, their small church is two hundred. Okay. Their next size up is you know five hundred to seven fifty. I think that they're working with the real small end of the tail of church sizes. Mm -hmm. And eventually they're going to have to, to work down the scale. So we're going to work with smaller churches. We're going to have more bivocational and trivocational ministers. Uh, uh, churches with multiple staffs, will churches will still have them. But again, they'll be bivocational, trivocational okay. uh, ministry. And uh, our res our financial resources are uh, are going to be more focused at mm -hmm. that point. I don't know quite what's going to happen with buildings at this point. Uh, you go like to uh, to Asia and not a lot of church buildings, you know, so they're in rented space. Uh, International Churches of Christ, uh, Boston Movement, they were kind of for us, kind of, got, they were the ones who were pioneering. How do you work out of rented spaces? So I'd say some churches that have buildings are going to, like the Northwest Church, go to a, to a seven-day-a-week model of how do we be, how do we be a, uh, as they say, a place for the community in which a church meets, uh, there's another one in Indianapolis. That's the same thing. They sold their building, their traditional, their traditional building. They bought a warehouse. They redid it. It's now a child care center and all mm -hmm. sorts of other things they have going in it. 
but they had to reformulate. We're not a church that invites people to it. We're a place where our community finds uh, a home and the church is part of that community. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be more community embedded. So I'd say neighborhood style churches of around uh, 70 to 125 are going to become much more normative. Mm. We're going to be much more focused on what's going on in our smaller neighborhood areas. And uh, we'll have to find ways to create those networks and affiliations to get that broader geographic sense and that broader sense of, of identity of who we are. Okay. So those are just some of the things I see uh, coming down the pike for the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so kind of going back to what Lars said about you being a prophet of disruption, um, the five uh, factors that you mentioned in that article showing the 30-year horizon to 2050 for Churches of Christ, you said, you know, number one, the graying of the flock, older uh, members of the of Churches of Christ are just simply dying, kind of creating a, a tsunami, if you will. And that tsunami is given uh, speed and height by losing younger generational cohorts. They're just not staying mm -hmm. at these churches because uh, it seems they're geared more towards those older generations. Um, lack of evangelism, not bringing other people to Christ. Uh, we've already mentioned number four, the failure to plant new churches. Um, and number five, you've, talked, you've touched on this already, polity model problems with the Ecclesia, ecclesiological ideal of exclusive elder-led congregations, which I think out of the five, uh, that would be the most disruptive and perhaps um, nerve-striking for people in Church of Christ, which that's like the bread and butter, you know, ecclesiological teaching in Church of Christ. It seems it has been since Alexander Campbell. And so how would you speak to somebody like, like my father, who's an elder at a church in Downriver, Detroit, who it was founded in early part of the 20th century. They've kind of hit that plateau slash decline. How, what would you have to say to him in, 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 uh, in light of our discussion today? Probably start with gifts and ministry. It was pretty powerful at uh, Fuller in the eighties and nineties, the idea of gifts and ministries. Um, but I think there's a, a, a very a fertile ground in there for us to plow and to gain from. So uh, you know, with elders, we have said our local elders who are born and bred in one context and whose only experiences in that one context are going to hire their uh, expertise from outside, but they can fire that expertise at any moment at any time. Yeah. If they if someone doesn't like it, they can, you know, the preacher gets fired. I've often said on the chessboard, the only movable piece is the minister. So when anything starts going wrong, it's the minister who moves because the elders and deacons, that's their home. That's where they live. And no one's going to fire them because they're going to stay around there. So we've got to move to, to uh, the idea of gifts and ministries. And uh, there's something in our elder polity model that you take dynamic men, very successful in their business life, very entrepreneurial in their business life, able to make decisions to assess what needs to be done uh, and to do those well when they get into around the elder table. 
they kind of all be, get the same sickness and uh, and we we kind of democratize to the lowest link uh, to the weakest link element i've seen so many elderships that are are just bound by the weakest link and the weakest link is usually the most fearful person in the room right and so when anything comes up about a change or about a need to address something the fear takes over and even when a decision is made uh, eventually it comes back to we can't implement because we have the fearful person who leads. And so we've got to be able to express those things. Uh, gifts and Ministries allows us to say who is gifted to make decisions, who can make decisions well, quickly, who can assess things, put it on the table, put it into words so the rest of us can do it. Uh, not everyone can chair a uh, an elders meeting. Yeah, it just it not everyone's gifted, but yet some elderships, everyone has to chair every month. Someone's gonna move around and and when you get the person who can't do it, everything comes to a halt. And so all that promotes that maintenance mentality, that maintenance mindset to us. And again, that weakest link, we go to the weakest link in our church. Yeah. I so sat down with a group of elders who said, we can't make this decision because sister so-and-so, who's 86 years old, she wouldn't be able to understand it, and so we can't do it. Right. And then they said, but she won't leave here if we stuck a piece of dynamite on her, <laughs> under her seat. She wouldn't leave. Yeah. And so that weakest link mentality there. Uh, so we've got to change that. It won't. It doesn't mean we don't need elders. Mm-hmm. And it's not that elders can only be uh, in that shepherding, doing the pastoral care roles, mm -hmm. but it means by giftedness, we allow people with the gifts that we need to carry out those gifts and to recognize them. Our ministers, you know, we've done, gone 75 years in our uh, universities training pastoral care ministers it's going to be really hard to change the model, but we've got to move to a more apostolic prophetic model than a teacher-preacher model. Okay. Um, I know a lot of preachers, they want to preach good good sermons on Sunday morning, but they don't have a clue how to lead, lead people. Maybe we connect them with MBA, uh, and uh, instead of separating ourselves out into graduate schools of theological education... Maybe we go and join up with some business uh, people and learn how to lead, learn how to make plans, learn how to figure out what needs to happen. Uh, so we're going to have to make a shift in uh, in our, our our ministers, and and that's going to I think would attract some good ministers for us who right now go. I have a good 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 friend. I don't know how wealthy the guy is. He's really wealthy. But he says regularly, Stan said I got out of the Bible department at Harding because you and Mike Cope and Randy Harris were there. And I couldn't compete with you guys. <laughs> so I got out and went to Harvard and got an MBA and made a billion bucks. <laughs> what if we That's took funny. minds like that and allowed them to bring their creativity into, into leading in churches, I think we have a new dynamic. Accountability is still required. Um, 
boy, Bobby Clinton at uh, Fuller, he struck an arrow deep and fast in my soul one day when he said, if you're going to wield spiritual authority, you must first learn to submit to spiritual authority. That's a hard lesson for a lot of us, but that's where eldership is really powerful, that we've got to be accountable and submit ourselves to others, and uh, that, that's a, a good part of our polity system. So there's things that we're going to have to uh, to reshape and uh, and, and change, and, and it's, it's going to be difficult to yeah. do. Yeah. I guess the one thing that just in my 10 years of ministering through different churches in Georgia, Central Valley, California, and here in the South Bay is just seeing the uh, the problem of, of kind of a vision strategy values and like, okay, what are we actually trying to accomplish? There was a lot, total lack of all that clarity. And so that became a, a very big passion of mine to the point of taking Will Mancini's class at Fuller um, yeah. on, uh, on visioning. And uh, that was an awesome experience. And um, but I, I just saw in 10 years with those three different churches in my own home congregation, the deep need, uh, to go through that tough process of, you know, trotting through, uh, that tough, lengthy process. That's not easy. It's, it's hard for churches to do. I, I was part of one or two that tried to do that and it just didn't, it didn't go well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, how, how would you advise leadership then to go through that process? of revisioning, trying to figure out a pathway forward that they'll come up with something useful and to implement. Mm -hmm. Well, I tried to do that in my book, uh, Empty Church. Oh, okay. The full title is Empty Church, Why People Don't Come and What to Do About It. Yeah. Because that's that's what churches are facing. <clears throat> I try to help them uh, to learn from the people around them to learn from their neighborhoods. So uh, as I do church consulting, uh, I'll do it on an 18-month process. And we use a simple in, out, up. Uh, comes from 3DM, Mike Breen, uh, Alex Absalom, a couple of names that have been associated in, with 3DM. And they use a missional communities. It's kind of their, uh, their big piece. But uh, the idea is, you need to find your neighborhood or your network that becomes your people, that you're going to claim them uh, in the name of Jesus, and you're going to serve that group of people. So most churches are in the neighborhood, so that's an easy one for them okay. to get to. So we start looking at their neighborhood and trying to learn their neighborhood and help them to ask the questions of their that their neighbors are asking instead of the demands they had. One of the churches I'm working with right now, one of their elders met someone from their neighborhood at the edge of the church parking lot. And she said, you know, I have never been inside your building. As long as we've lived here and you've been here, I've never been inside. And he, he didn't know how to do that. And as uh, we were coaching, I said, you know, that would be a great time to say, well, let me give you a tour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he just stopped and he said, I never thought of that. And so the people that are out there are going to lead us to those kinds of questions, and they begin to help us see ourselves from an external perspective. Most churches think they're very friendly, uh, but you get someone who's brand new from outside, it doesn't feel that way to them. But when we start making those friends and 
they start coming with us and we hear their perspective, all of a sudden it raises new questions. It helps us to, uh, to give new frames of vocabulary and experiences uh, so that we are now going like this instead of like this because mm -hmm. so many of our churches now and their culture around us are just not meeting we want we want to get together and meet them that's the essential but then in the 18 months we go from we start by uh go we talk about designer default mm -hmm. are you working from a default perspective are you designing it mm -hmm. and simple things like look at your uh your stage area I've been in so many churches that their stage has not changed since maybe 1990. We're in 2020. <laughs> yeah. The same ficus trees are up there. You know, there might be stage. a PowerPoint screen, but that's about it. You know, <laughs> that may be it. Yeah. it. I hate to say it, but it probably has the paperless hymnal on it, which is mm -hmm. a death knell. Yeah. It's just the way it is. So how do you how do you make that a stage? And so we talk about what happens on a stage. Things change. I went there, the church that it was for us, we call it our secret church. It was in Portland. And while we were ministering in Kairos, we'd go there because no one knew our name. It was the, it was the <laughs> opposite of fears. We wanted it that way. We walked in one, one day and the stage was a mess. It had old tires and boxes and and uh, just pieces of wood and, and chain link fence and junk on it. We were there for the first day of a seven-week series on Romans. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to the end of the seven weeks, it was the transforming of your mind. And the stage was now all that same stuff was there, but it had been become beautiful. And through those seven weeks, we got to see that stage create the message that the minister was bringing to us from Romans. So our stage is where things happen. A stage has communication ability to it. A stage should raise our uh, our interest. It should uh, raise our, our level of uh, inquiry of what's going to happen today. Because whenever God shows up, everything changes. And most of our churches, you know, <laughs> All they're looking to do is make sure all the prayers are taken care of and the songs are there and we've done everything decently in order, but we don't ever ask, did God show up today? We've got to ask, does God show up of what happens when he shows up? And so that, that begins to change everything. So default to design, maintenance to missional. And then we talk about a growth engine, a church growth engine, and start helping them get their cylinders starting to work in their their growth engine and, and the the end result is more leaders um in the first three months will usually double or triple the number of leaders that they have because each in out and up has an action team and the action team has new leaders in it and it can't be anyone from the staff or the elders and so they're raising new leaders and they're mm -hmm. beginning to empower those leaders and those leaders are asking new questions. And, and the end goal is just five new families at the end of 18 months. Yeah. And you bring in five new families. Yeah. That's, that's because a... then that starts things moving and, and new questions and, and gets us going, I think, more in that mission oriented direction. <laughs> okay. That's really good. So, Stan, as we're 
I, I really like this image that you're using from kind of uh, default to design. I, I mean, I think in some ways, as we've been talking in our episodes, we've been talking about how the default uh, retirement vehicles are not necessarily working for a lot of people, not just in America in general, but but as Churches of Christ ministers are kind of a microcosm of that. And we've had a few experts on, um, but as you're thinking about that move from kind of default to design, I mean, I, I hear your stuff with real estate. It's an active thing. It's not a passive income. It's a very active mm -hmm. income. Um, as I hear you talk about the church growth models and, and these kind of things, like you're actually, this is really intentional stuff that you're doing. There's a design to it that's really working. So as you've worked with um, Kairos and the, and the stuff for for 15 years this is question five can you can you explain what um what you did in teaching your church planters to do in terms of accumulating assets for retirement did, did you guys incorporate that as you were uh you know launching new churches did you talk a little bit about retirement asset accumulation uh for for the ministers who were serving with kairos yeah we did you know it wasn't a uh a huge piece, but it was there. So uh, one of the things we did was any new church planner that we started working with, uh, we, we provided them a uh, consult with a, uh, a pastoral uh, tax person. And we found one that uh, we just thought the world of. She was, she was great. She knew ministerial tax. And so we would set up and we'd pay for Kairos would pay for that to sit down with her for an hour and to talk through, you know, what kind of records do you need to take and what do you get to take off of your taxes and how do you do that? And we would pay for their first year uh, tax through mm -hmm. that person if they wanted to do that. So we wanted to first get that sense of uh, you know, you you kind of are in a bit of a privileged place as a as a minister in our U.S. tax system, and so how do you how do you take the best advantage of what our government has said we want to provide for you? So that was number one, and then we would, uh, if they didn't have a personal financial advisor, uh, we had someone that we would use, and again, we do the same thing. We'd introduce them and uh, set up a time for them to visit with that personal tax advisor and at least hear what it's like and what some options were. Uh, they were under no obligation to go with this person th for any of the services. Uh, but we always encourage them, wherever you're at, find that person that you trust, that speaks your language, uh, who can help you with your personal finances. So those were the two things that we we built into our system for, uh, you know, thinking about retirement. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't go much further than that, but that's okay. probably further than a lot of churches, you know, go to. Yeah. Uh, we weren't able to provide, uh, you know, any assets or contributions or anything that, uh, you know, we would have loved to do that, but we didn't have those kinds of finances. But we, we did talk with them then about how you've got to build people in your church and in your support team who really had your best interest in heart. So as you, they went out to uh, get their support, we use support raising solutions as a model, a great program to, uh, to help them. We didn't want them to go out and say, well, I've got 70% of my salary, so I'm okay. 
And we said, mm -hmm. no, you're not okay until you got 100%. Mm -hmm. And so we'd work with them under budgets to get appropriate budgets and say, no, this is what you need. And you need to, you need to get 100% of that together. Uh, so, you know, just trying to help get that mindset in place. And then as we worked with their financial teams and their churches, and part of that uh, training of their financial trains, teams was how do you take care of your minister? Uh, and how do you know when your minister is telling you really what's going on and when they're not really telling you what's going on? Yeah. So how do you build up your support as a new church, uh, you know, for your minister? Uh, so that's about as far as we took it. But, uh, you know, we tried to set those foundations into place for them. Got it. Got it. You know, that's good. That's good. Um, as we wind down this conversation, like, yeah, 10, 10 ish minutes left or so, um, you're also the vice chairman, uh, for an organization called Heritage 21 Foundation. Can you explain, uh, what Heritage 21 is to those who aren't aware of it yet? Uh, first off, and then I'll follow up with another question. Okay. Yeah. Heritage 21, it came out of our work in starting new churches and we saw, we saw some churches make some of the most horrible mistakes at the end of their life uh, when they would close mm -hmm. and uh, they might have a million dollars of real estate or something like that. And by the time everything was said and done, they, I wouldn't say they'd squandered the money in every circumstance, but many they did. Okay. Uh, and we thought, how can we rescue those resources that God has already given our fellowship for new kingdom work and growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as we've been doing that, we realized that when churches get down below 50 and their numbers and, and they're older, don't have those young people in, what happens is they start losing their leadership and then they start losing their ability to make decisions that are good decisions. So Heritage 21 is here to Number one, help churches with assessment and to decide where are they at in their life cycle, a church life cycle. Uh, churches have a life cycle like a human does. Most of, in fact, most churches tend to live about as long as human beings do, which mm -hmm. makes sense when a church starts to serve the generation that they are starting in. That's right. what they're designed to do. And by the time you get to uh, grandparents and great-grandparents, eh, they're not serving those generations anymore, the, mm -hmm. those new ones. So that's why we need new churches. Uh, but to help those churches understand where they are, the normalcy of coming to the end of life, uh, to uh, make do estate planning as a church, uh, to decide before they get to crisis, you know, what, what do we need to do? Where can we where can we help people and where can we help the kingdom the most? And then uh, to help them with revitalization, if they have that option, if it's uh, they haven't gone so far down that uh, they don't have that option. So uh, you know, we do we do consulting with churches and help uh, help them grow and try to hit that revitalization button. And if they don't, uh, then we provide those services to where they can literally say, we don't have the. We don't have the energy. We don't have the resources. We are tired. We need to. We need to give this up. They can turn it over to Heritage Twenty One, and we'll 
We'll help them make their transitions out of the building, give them the time that they need, and then sell the building and whatever that church has said in their estate plan uh, of where the money goes, then Heritage 21 will be the trustee to make sure that their will, their estate gets handled the way they want it to be handled. So we're trying to help churches not feel bad about closing, to make it a normal part of life, to give them some tools to move forward if they can, and if they can't, give them tools to, to close out well in a way we call it grace-filled mm-hmm. and faithful. Mm. And that's yeah. what we'd like to help them to do. And as doing that, it goes to help the other side of you know ministry life of new churches and missions and evangelism and moving things forward to get that, uh, that next generation of new people yeah. into God's kingdom. And so based upon that experience with Heritage 21 and the churches that you've worked with, what have you learned, uh, if anything, about kind of where ministers are at those churches in terms of financially preparing for retirement? Yeah, most, most of the ministers in those churches, if they still have any, they're coming in. So they become the safety net for people who have already retired out of their ministry. Okay. So they get to get $150, $200 a week to Got supplement it. their come uh that's the generally what we find uh, at that stage got it okay that makes sense that makes sense yeah i know what's it's interesting living in the in the south bay not being far away from santa cruz santa cruz is on the coast you probably heard of it recently in the news about from all the uh atmospheric rivers kind of really pounding all those uh oceanside towns um santa cruz is, is known for being like portland weird right um, and yet the churches, especially Churches of Christ in Santa Cruz, are very, very conservative and they're very small. And, you know, I tried to get some of that kind of um, uh, income by helping them out preaching. And yet somebody like me who like goes to Fuller, you know, um, and doesn't adhere to like some of the basic, very conservative Church of Christ tenets of, let's say, women's roles and instrumental music, they're unwilling to, you know, uh, bring me in to speak. Um, and so I just found that to be very, very, very interesting, at least on the West Coast, like never growing up back east, um, you think everybody thinks and assumes California is liberal, but California has some very, very conservative mm-hmm. pockets, Central Valley, and even in where you don't even think they would be we're on, on the coast. Yeah, yeah. Coast, San Jose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I uh, Santa Cruz, those, uh, at least that one I'm aware of in Santa Cruz is kind of like what you were talking about there. It's it's for those for those guys who have already retired to come in and speak, and they actually, I, from what I learned, that they they bring in somebody all the way from the Central Valley who wasn't even, I think, a minister in order to preach for them, and that's uh, that's kind of a shame because there's a there's a lot of uh, others who who could help them out to a lot closer, um, but um, in terms of wrapping up this conversation, um. Based upon all of your life experience, Heritage 21, the book, new book you just wrote, uh, have written, Empty Church, well, you can find it on Amazon if you're interested in reading that. Um, you know, Kairos, uh, teaching, missionary, minister. What is some parting wisdom or advice or encouragement for pastors and or churches on the matter of accumulating assets for retirement? As we keep talking about, we're in this context referred to by Gillarducci as the American DIY retirement crisis. What, what if anything, do you have to offer to close this out? Well, I wish there was more, you know, 
could say about the DIY, but that's where it is. So I, I think number one, uh, and I, I did this at uh, church that uh, I retired out of as executive minister in Arkansas, I sat down with the younger staff and we went through this. So number one, you've got to do it yourself. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're going to get from a church. It will never match what someone's going to get from uh, from the business world. So you're going to have to do it yourself. Uh, so number one, be in the social security system, get that foundation in there. Number two, if the church does offer uh, things that will be helpful, if they have any kind of a retirement system, take it and do it to the max. So if it's matching, match it out to the max. Uh, then number two or three, I would say, uh, I think you you guys are right on, Jordan, with uh, these index funds, uh, right. annuities and, and whole life funds uh, that, yeah, you're not, you may not get the, say, the big score out of it, but you've got something that is going to take what you put into it, will make it grow and will give you a very certain income. That might between those, you might get to fifty percent of your of your income uh, that you'd want to have. I don't think anymore. I don't see how anyone will be able to save their way in retirement anymore. So you have to invest your way into retirement. Okay. Uh, so that's why I think that third piece it becomes a type of investment vehicle that most ministers could do. Okay. Uh, it takes a lot of you know, disciplined to do it, but I think most most people could. For for us, we put fourteen thousand a year for ten years into one. Okay. And it took a lot, yeah. But we had been paying that through to uh, universities, and so we just switched the money over to that retirement vehicle when our last child graduated from from university. So we just kept it up and kept going with that, and then. <clears throat> Uh, you know, find the way that, that, that you can, how can you invest? What fits your level of ability? And you call it risk, but it's not risk as much as it is management, your ability of management. So we chose uh, real estate because that's what I was familiar with and what I felt comfortable with and what through my experience I saw as being the most advantageous to us. And that, you know, funds the other 50% of okay. things. So that you got to make that decision of how do you get to that other spot? But mm -hmm. the big thing is you've got to, to be willing to say, this is, this is on me to do this. No one else is going to take, take care of that. And even those in the best churches, uh, you still hear things like, well, ministers, if you make too much money, that you get criticized. If you don't make enough money, you don't handle money well. And if you retire and can't pay for your retirement, you've been a slacker. Yeah. And that's just what you, you tend to hear. So find those people who can help you well and uh, make sure that you're taking care of yourself as you're doing your ministry, because you're the only one that's going to be able to do that in the end. Okay. I Great. hope that's not a downer. I hope that's a hope that's a me. No, some no, encouragement there. <laughs> no, not at all. It's very encouraging. Lars, do you want to follow up with that at all? Oh, I I mean, I, I appreciate um what you've had to to share with us, Stan. I think um that 
sometimes it's the way you hear it, right? The way you receive it. So my hope is people do receive this as a, as just a, a little bit of a clarifying speaking truth and saying, Hey, don't wait around for somebody to, to take care of this for yourself. Um, and it's not something that, uh, you know, I think we've talked about the image of retirement. Sometimes people are like, I'm not going to retire because right. I don't want to go off into the sunset and just sit on the beach and be in vacation. I want to be contributing to the kingdom. And well, that's not the kind of retirement we're talking about. We're right. we're saying you need to save, you need to be proactive. You need to not um, wait passively for the, the things that are going to provide you the ability to do some of the things you're doing now with Heritage 21 and what you've been able to do with Kairos throughout the years um, to serve the kingdom in, in unique ways that maybe aren't as located in the specific ministry that they got paid for, for the, the time that they were of working age. Um, we're still serving God's kingdom. And, uh, and so right. I think the way we should receive that invitation is to say, God has a calling for your life that may be outside the context that you're in right now. And uh, he's, he's inviting you to, to, join in that in a very active way to pursue yeah. that in a really active way. So, um, yeah, I think I, that's the way I received it. I think that's a, that's an important there, message. There's always people who are going to be, if you can find those two or three people who can be great financial mentors for you, mm. um, grab hold of them and make a team of them yeah. on your behalf because they, it will bless them. And it'll bless you to do that. And that that can be a very powerful piece in your life. Mm -hmm. I did not have that. Uh, but my experience of in 2020 of trying to see what it would be like to be a financial professional and going through that a year um, was, I guess, the impetus that uh, I needed in terms of figuring out, okay, uh, I'm more aware of what is out there. Maybe IULs, when I first heard about them and learned about them, which many people have not, I was like, man, that really sounds like that would be helpful for pastors and, and maybe even churches, you know, and because it's and most people haven't heard about that. So maybe we need to tell more people about that fixed index annuities and so forth. So it's um, that's good. Hopefully most pastors have somebody like that in their lives. Um, if not already, they need to, like you said, need to seek one out yeah. and not wait to see if uh, anybody might find them. Um, Again, I, I would encourage I would encourage people to get a team. I love three. Threes are, are powerful. Yeah. You get three people who can be part of your life team to help you with that. What a tremendous blessing that is. Yeah. Just very, very, very powerful for you. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Stan, thank you very much for being a part of this podcast episode today. Again, uh, your book, Empty Church, um, it just came out right this year. Uh, it came out came out last year, 2022. Okay, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okay. Uh, so I'd encourage churches to get it, and it raises good questions. I sat down with a group of elders a couple months ago, and they said, "Oh, good, we were so afraid that what you would tell us we need to do, but we can do this, mm -hmm. and we can, we can do." Jordan, thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. Your work that you're doing there at Fuller, it is going to be a I think a dynamic piece that's been empty uh, for a lot of ministers and pastors 
Uh, so glad that you're spreading it around. Lars, thanks for being part of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys, you guys are in the building part of your life. Build on. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying. Thank you for the encouragement. And if you are listening or watching this episode right now, just uh, anticipate a, about eight more episodes coming out in the next course of a uh, couple courses of uh, next couple weeks or, or months. Uh, hopefully we'll get these, turn these out for you in a timely manner. But until next episode, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Once again, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Almost Essential Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to reach out, you can connect with me, Jordan Koss, on Facebook or Instagram. We hope this series is a valuable resource for you, pastor or otherwise. And remember, you are not almost essential. Your role and service in the church is essential, as well as saving for retirement within your holy vocation and calling.